Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space and welcome to episode number 160. I am your host, Mark Shapiro, and my guest in episode 160 is Dr. Malika Syker. And Malika is a radiation oncologist and the associate dean for student inclusion and diversity at the Medical College of Wisconsin. For me, this was a great opportunity to speak with someone who practices one of the most mysterious, confusing, and for lots of people, scary parts of medicine, which is radiation oncology, where we use radiation to treat cancer. The call went out and the response that I got from people around the country of who was the right person to speak to to start to unlock this this really mysterious practice was Malika. And it was an absolute thrill to speak with her because not only did we dive into the work that she does around treating cancers and practicing medicine wielding radiation, but we were able to really spend some time looking at healthcare literacy, health equity, fear, and how it impacts care, as well as how she's extending the lessons that she's learned and the practices that she uses into her community to address cancer disparities at the community level and to begin to grow that work in her work in education. There is so much that she is doing that is right out at the sharp edge, and it was just a total thrill to speak with her. This is a really inspiring episode from from someone who I think is really going to be one of our more important emerging leaders within the practice of medicine. Before we get to this conversation, like I always do, I want to invite everyone to please take the opportunity to subscribe to Explore the Space wherever you like to download your podcast. And I always like to invite people to check out the website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. But I do this now more so than ever because we've actually gone ahead and revamped the website. It looks pretty similar. If you've never been to the site, please do so. But if you've been there before and you look, what you're going to see, especially in the toolbar, we now have places where you can click to get the white papers that we've done, keynotes that I've given, the live show that we've done, the whole archive of the podcast is there. If you go to the homepage and you click on where it says the podcast, it's going to take you to a screen that looks pretty similar. However, we have gone ahead and relabeled all of the episodes in the archive under selected show topics. So you will see all of the specific episodes around things like advocacy or leadership or disaster management or climate change, gun violence, social media. They're all there where you can just click on one link and find all the wonderful content specific to what you may be interested in. And on that same vein, we've got a really robust search field now. And this was something that I'm really happy about. You can search by guest, you can search by topic, and it will bring you up all of the relevant content. And it's the same icon that you would expect on any other website. On the homepage as well, you can find our social media feeds. You can find my Twitter feed at ETS show, as well as my Instagram feed at explore the space show. You can still contact us. You can still email me through the website. The whole archive is there. All of the places to listen and subscribe are there. I'm really excited about this revamp. Please do take a look. Please let me know what you think. You can email me, as I said, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on social media. I'm very active on Twitter, and I'm very active on Instagram as well. Would love to hear what you think about the new website, but also really love to hear what you think of this conversation with Malika. This is a fun one. This is a special one. We're just 
the people that we're going to interact with on this show, I just does not cease to amaze me. And in keeping with that tradition, episode 160 with Malika Syker is really remarkable. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So without further ado, Malika Syker. Malika, thank you so much for coming on Explore the Space. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We had to press through many obstacles and barriers to make this happen. I think right now you are in the driver's seat with most reschedules, and I appreciate it. We have to be resilient because we have full-time jobs, and like everyone else, we get colds and flus, but I really appreciate you hanging in there with me because I'm really, really happy you're here. Thank you. Me too. We are going to start from the beginning. The The idea of mystery in medicine is one that is always exciting and I think somewhat scary, but I think it's also really important. And you practice a type of medicine that for me, even though I've been doing this for a while, even though I've been directly exposed to the work, is still shrouded in mystery. And I think it's important that we take that high level strategic view of exactly what is radiation oncology. And, and that's that's where I want to start with you because I think you can frame this thing that is so important, so vital to us being able to provide high-level care for people, but also something that is confusing, hidden, misunderstood. Help us understand radiation oncology. That's a great question. Radiation oncology, I think, is very mysterious for the public, patients, other doctors, medical students, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about radiation oncology. And there's a huge initiative in our field right now to try to help people understand what it is that we do. You know, radiation therapy is one of the oldest cancer treatments out there. William Rentgen discovered the x-ray over 100 years ago in the late 1800s. So this is a treatment modality that has been used for over 100 years, and yet there's a lot that's not understood. So what we do in radiation oncology is we use um, ionizing x-rays to treat cancer patients or other types of tumors. It's so funny because for me, my first exposure to the idea of radiation was growing up during the Cold War and being afraid of it. Because that informed the narrative, right? We were always doing like duck and cover drills and worrying about what would happen if there was a nuclear bomb. And there were shows on TV about, you know, nuclear winter and radiation. And it was really scary. And I remember when I first started learning about radiation being a component of healthcare and of taking care of people, it was really hard for me to reconcile. Do you find that many, many generations are informed around the idea of radiation as a part of medicine in that same way? Or is that just me? No, a lot of our patients in the public, just like you said, are afraid of radiation therapy. You know, when radiation therapy was first discovered, it was a very exciting time. And it actually used to be a very trendy thing, like in the 20s. I mean, they were like literally putting you know, radiation in the water and in beauty products. It it was thought to be sort of like a panacea. And then there was a backlash um, when it was discovered all of the harmful things that radiation can do. When harnessed properly, radiation therapy is a very powerful tool to, you know, kill cancer, but there are definitely harmful side effects. So it's just about getting the message out there to patients that radiation therapy is safe, but you know, it's incumbent on us as radiation oncologists, too, to educate people and to um, make sure that there still are risks associated with treatment. I want to take a different view of this because I've 
been thinking about this in the lead up to speaking with you about radiation oncology is like what type of like fantasy character would a radiation oncologist be? I would say it's like you're a wizard because you're dealing with these ethereal things we can't see. You target them directly. You do them in different ways. It, that one fits for me. I wonder if you've ever been asked that question before, but I like to think about this because for me, it helps me better understand what my colleagues are doing, attaching it to to something that, that I have always liked, you know, like comic books and movies and things like that. So I'm going to give you wizard. What does that feel like? I think that feels appropriate. I'm kind of a science <laughs> fiction person. And so on some days, especially when I'm in the treatment room with patients, I feel like one of those doctors from Star Trek. Nice. That has like magical, like remote controls that we put over the patient. I mean, it kind of looks and feels like that sometimes. So walk us through that. The room is always detached from the main hospital. It's never actually like in the main acute care areas because it has to be right. It's sort of like, I always remember when I'm trying to reach my colleagues who are radiation oncologists, they never have a cell phone signal and it's annoying. Yeah. Um, it's because of the nature of the linear accelerators. Um, most of our, uh, departments are in the basement because, um, of the leakage of the radiation to floors beneath at our institution, we're actually on the third floor and they built this structure that suspended. So there's no floors beneath it for the bunkers, for the radiation therapy machines. So we actually are lucky. We get to be on the third floor and have windows. But because of the shielding uh, that's required, normally we're in the basement. I love that I host a podcast where I got to have a guest say, it's because of the nature of the linear accelerators. That was awesome. I probably should have used a different term. But, no way. Uh, you said Star Trek and linear accelerators like 10 seconds apart. So that's perfect. I think that's one of the problems that we have in our field, though, is a lot of, you know, we, when we write patient materials, we're always very conscious about the readability level yeah. and just the words that we have to use, like even the word radiation, um, it's hard to get the readability down and to use words that, you know, that are more relatable. Speaking of this idea of relatability, you shared with me before we started recording that you had listened to the episode of Explore the Space with my wife where she talked about her treatment for breast cancer and part of her treatment was radiation therapy. And in terms of relatability, I went to a couple of her appointments but and I had the opportunity to meet the members of the team that took care of her, the physician, all the technologists, all of the people from the check-in desk all the way till the end of the, of the course of treatment. Relatability seemed to be not just emphasized, but essential that there was a real attention paid to making sure that that whole process going in this case, down the elevator into the basement or up to the third floor and then into the room and into this place where you're going to have things that are hovering over you. And there's going to be remote controls and equipment that you've never seen before, that it was still human, that there was still someone there, that there was still connection to the real world that felt like it was intrinsic to the work. Does that feel like something that as you're doing your training and as you're building your team and as you're bringing patients on board, that that is part of the work? Absolutely. You know, I, and I think, like you said, it extends to all members of the care team. Our radiation therapists are the individuals that deliver radiation therapy every day to our patients. And I think that by seeing them every day, Monday through Friday, 
they develop a relationship with patients. They start to get involved in each other's lives. And that spills over to everybody else, the nurses, the physicians. I think it's incumbent on us because we have such a highly technological field that we need to work extra hard to relate to our patients on a humanistic level. I think that when you're in training, you work really hard to try to master the material. And then once you're out, you realize that that's not what patients are really looking for. Of course, they want expert care and they want you to be smart, but more importantly, they want to be able to relate to you and to know that you'll be there for them to help them through the journey. You're right. 100%. I think that the, the, technological know-how and the smarts that's just baked in that's expected but what you were saying around that relatability piece is it's so essential how do you as a part of the team and you know we know that when you're the physician oftentimes you're looked to to demonstrate some leadership around this how do you sit with your team to make sure that you are all doing that at the highest level i think it comes down to finding meaning in your work And I think for everybody, it's a little bit different. It's a very personalized thing. For me, my calling into cancer was when my dad was diagnosed with cancer during medical school. And I started to learn about oncology. And from an intellectual standpoint, it really fascinated me. But from a humanistic standpoint, to see my dad go through it and to see how the doctors were interacting with him, I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. So for me, I go back to fundamentals and I think about my family, I think about my dad and what he'd want. And I think for everybody on the care team, there's something that resonates with them on a personal level. I think for most of us that are in this field, um, it's a calling. Is that a sustainable approach? You're, you're, you're entering kind of the prime of your career. You've been doing this for a while. Do you feel like that that approach will hold? I love it. I absolutely love it. And it's important when you do work like this that is difficult and stressful and sad and all of those things that we look for sustainability. Do you feel like this way for you right now and for your team especially so that you can keep your team intact is working? I think so. I think what's important is to model a lot of vulnerability. You know, it's hard when you have to go in and give a patient really bad news and you have to pull it together uh, because you've got a patient waiting in the next room. Um, you know, wanting to have, you know, a unique experience as well. So um, I think that, you know, modeling vulnerability, having colleagues and other members of the care team that you can talk to is really essential. It's having that community, whether it's, you know, local or, you know, through national organizations. I really like that this is the way you're looking at it, because I just I'm thinking about the experiences that my family had with this. And it's so difficult and it's so nice to know that the people that are doing the work are learning and thinking about strategies to keep their humanity and to emphasize the importance of connecting because it's such a world apart. It's so strange. And I didn't even go through it. Right. I was, I was, I was just the the spouse on the, on the roller coaster, but it's, it's gratifying to hear the way you're framing it. I think it's hard for everybody that goes through the process, particularly for, I mean, patients and caregivers. I mean, in in both situations, you know, you want to put on a face and be strong and not complain and convince everybody that you're okay when maybe inside you're feeling differently. So 
it's important for everybody, patients, caretakers, to have someone that they can talk to, to sort of just unload on, uh, to, you know, let them know the real deal. You know, of course, you want to be positive and you want to be strong and all that. But some days you just don't feel well, or maybe you're scared or depressed. And, you know, those are real emotions that people need to process too. And you might not feel comfortable going to your spouse and, and saying that, or, you know, you, you might not want to, cause you don't want to disappoint them and vice versa as a caregiver, you might not be scared, but you might not want to show that to your, you know, family member who's a patient. So it's complicated for everybody. It is complicated. And, and all of those things that we've been talking about, right. The, this, the sort of almost science fiction nature of the work, the detachment from the rest of the healthcare infrastructure, all of that stuff makes it even more so. And that kind of, I think, brings us to another place where you have developed significant amounts of expertise. And when I had an interest in having a radiation oncologist come on, explore the space, it was made very clear to me that you were the person to speak with. Because another variable that makes this that much more complex is the issue of healthcare literacy and health disparities and bringing people who are in that place into this world of science fiction and challenge and detachment frame that work for us just a little bit, because even just saying it out loud, it's complicated. I think it is. And I think a lot of us that are um, in the field are sort of working really hard to raise the awareness of cancer disparities within radiation oncology. Uh, you know, I remember one of the ways that I got involved in this is, you know, being a, a woman of color, I've always been involved in issues surrounding diversity and inclusion, but you know, that all translates to health equity. And within radiation oncology, oncology we have this obsession with technology. Um, there's a famous radiation oncologist that said that if radiation oncologists were in charge of finding the cure for polio, all we'd have is a better iron lung. You know, we <laughs> oh, man. We just seem to have this obsession with technology. And I remember I was a resident or junior faculty, faculty member. I was working on a talk or a research project for a disease that, you know, less than, you know, a thousand people get worldwide. And I was advocating for a technology that didn't even exist yet that almost nobody would get. And I remember just sitting there thinking, you know, if we just applied what we had today, to everybody, we'd save hundreds and thousands of lives. And so that's where I decided that I wanted to take my career is to just, you know, we need to come out of, we need to leave our linear accelerators. We need to come out of our bunkers and we need to get out into the community and talk to patients about what we know. So I think there's a big role for radiation oncologists in this conversation, knowing what we know about treating cancer. What are the common barriers that you run into across the population when the idea of radiation therapy is introduced for someone with a cancer diagnosis? I think it's fear. I think patients are just really afraid of having to come in and get treatments. And unfrequently, patients will be more afraid of the radiation than the chemotherapy. And in most cases, or many cases, I don't want to say most cases, but infrequently, um, the radiation therapy has less side effects than the chemotherapy, depending on the stage and type of cancer. So a lot of it is just patient education. When you're doing that education work, right, that fits in with your work around health disparities, because that's not unique to radiation oncology. This is work across every component of healthcare delivery 
Are there barriers that are unique to radiation oncology, or is it the same work across the board? I think that as radiation oncologists, we need to be more creative about um, what we see as the scope of our work. So it goes beyond targeting technology. You know, I would argue that, you know, we need more emphasis on biology, of course, but I think that we also can play a role in cancer prevention, going out to the community and advocating for smoking cessation, talking about vaccination, other risk factors that lead to cancer. So I think that a lot of us, or a lot of people in the field think that that's work for other people to do. But um, I think that we have a role in doing that type of work as well. That's the kind of leadership that people want to hear. I mean, that's, that's what is so important, right? There's no reason for people to stay in the bunker, literally or figuratively. We want all of our smart people to get out there and you use the word creativity. So now we get to have some fun. What are the creative ways that you are able to leverage the skills that you have to drive the work that for you is so important? I think that the best thing we can do is reach out to other people that are already doing good work in the space. So um, one of the areas that I'm passionate about is cancer disparities in the LGBTQ community. I just don't think people are talking enough about it. And ASCO released a statement a few years ago defining the scope of issues in the LGBT community and what we should do as an oncology community to address it. And so um, I worked with one of my residents after this article came out and we became engaged with a lot of local LGBTQ groups. Um, and one of the big pushes that's happening in our community is to make major events. We have Summerfest here at Milwaukee, we have Pride Fest, we have major festivals and they're not smoke free. So um, we got involved in a lot of community groups to try to push making um, all of these events smoke free. So there's room for us community members, they need us at the table, and we need them. So it's, it's been extremely rewarding to to get involved in the community on a local level. Doing that work within the community of radiation oncologists, which is not large, there aren't many, many, many hundreds of thousands of radiation oncologists across the United States. How is that sort of work regarded? Is it universally accepted? Are you sort of looked at as someone who is doing something outside the norm, somewhere in the middle? I would say that most radiation oncologists, or I'd say a lot of people in academia, they really work hard on their national reputation or international reputation. And I think it's a missed opportunity to not get involved at the local scene. And so I've been really intentional about getting involved in my community. I mean, Milwaukee needs it. We're one of the most segregated cities in the United States we have major health disparities, particularly in oncology. So to, to work on all these things at a national scale and to not focus on what's happening at home is just an absolute missed opportunity. So I think that more and more there is an awareness for people in academia to get more involved at a local level. So, yeah, I don't think it's something that a lot of people are doing, but I think more and more people are doing it. When you want to do this or someone who hears this says this sounds like the right work, who do you reach out to to find partnership and collaboration? You know, I think that it has to be organic. Okay. So I think people should just look within themselves or within their profession or their passions and figure out what because this is time away from family. This is time away from work. So if you want to do this work, you want to make sure that it's something that you're passionate about. So, you know, think about, you know, what you're passionate about. And then 
start looking around at who's out there in the community um, doing similar work and ask to go to lunch or have coffee with someone. And I think that you'd be surprised at the number of people that are looking for collaboration. Give us a story. Give us what you've, you've engaged with some of the largest festivals that any major city will have. How did that start? So um, we read, so my resident and I, we read that ASCO article and then we started to poke around our cancer center. Okay, what are we doing for community outreach? How does this work? And we discovered that there was already a community of individuals that were doing, that were doing community outreach, mostly to the African-American and Latinx community. And so we were invited to the meeting to discuss LGBTQ cancer disparities. So we made a presentation there and we got some great feedback about what an event could look like. And we ended up hosting an event at the LGBT Community Center, which went really well. But sort of as an offshoot of that, we developed a relationship with the Milwaukee Tobacco Free Alliance. You know, members of the LGBTQ community smoke at much higher rates compared to their non-LGBTQ counterparts. And so there's a, just a huge effort within the LGBTQ community to try to get smoking rates down. And so this particular community group has been very active. For example, I think last year was the first year that our local Pride Fest didn't take any sponsorship money from cigarette companies. Wow. So that was a huge win. And That's so the a next, win for sure. So the next step is to try to make all of this festival smoke-free or at least majority smoke-free and have some designated smoking areas. Right now, they're most it's all smoking and there's some designated non-smoking areas. So we'd like at a minimum to flip that. You're starting out on this, but are you finding other festivals, other organizations in other cities are reaching out to say, hey, is the work you're doing generalizable? Can we take this template and apply it here? I think if anything, we're following the lead of a lot of great organizations that have made the choice. Like, for example, the Disney parks are now smoke-free. It's amazing to think that they they weren't, yeah. but um, that's something that recently happened. The Disney's parks are smoke-free. We have an exciting basketball team here in Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Bucks, and they just opened up a sort of an outdoor area outside the stadium. It's called the Deer District, and the Deer District, this outdoor area is smoke-free, um, there's an event, local event, Chill on the Hill. That's like an outdoor music event. That's now smoke free. So I think it's, I think the tide is turning, and we hope to help push that along. I like the idea that you're emphasizing smoke free areas because, again, that circles back to the work that you do and the links between cigarette smoke and cancer of all types is it's unquestioned now. And we know that if we can move the needle on that, then we move the needle on cancer prevention. Are there other places? Do you have the time and the bandwidth to move into other stuff, or is this where you're going to focus for a while? Our cancer center is going for NCI designation, and so we have um, launched a community advisory board about five years ago. And so our community advisory board is tasked with doing exactly this work. And so this past September, we hosted a cancer disparity conference focusing on the um, burden of prostate cancer in African-American men. So, I mean, really, where, where there's a cancer disparity, we want to be there talking about it, educating the public, at least on a local level. So it's just imperative that we get the word out to the community. It's an interesting tension, though, because if I look into the crystal ball for you in 10 years, it's going to be calls for you on that national level or even on that international level. And as you reflected on earlier, 
when we focus too much of our attention there, we might forget or neglect or not pay adequate attention to the local level. As you rise, and you will, and you already are, to that level of attention where the big conferences and large organizations are reaching out to you, are you paying attention to that? Are you? Is that going to just be a, a sort of an ever-evolving challenge for you? I think so. You know, I think what's really important is to not be on this journey alone. And uh, if you look at, we've done some sessions through the American Society of Radiation Oncology, ASTRO, it's the big radiation oncology organization. If you, we've done all of these educational sessions around workforce diversity, cancer disparity. And we always, at the beginning of every session, you know, do a poll and, you know, raise your hand if you're a resident, raise your hand if you're a student, et cetera. And the amount of residents, students, young people that are interested in this area is huge. So, you know, it's important that we get everybody involved in this area because it truly can't just be one person or a few people. We want everybody working on this. And I think that a lot of a lot of our learners have a passion for this. And so if we can model that and, you know, spread that passion, it'll just translate to better outcomes for our patients. But I'm looking at it. I mean, I agree with you. I'm looking at it a little bit differently, though, where it's going to be demand for you and your insights and expertise from outside of medicine. So, right. Breaking out. We talk about breaking out of our silos all the time for you. We reflected on the idea of you're in a bunker several times here. I am looking forward to and excited about the idea of you in particular, but more and more people who do this work being forward facing to the community at large. It's going to be a huge demand, but like, as I'm listening to you speak, I want it even more than I did before we started speaking. You're the person to do this work, but it's going to be a challenge, right? It's going to, we don't want it to detract too much. Have you experienced that at all? Definitely. I took on a new role recently um, at my medical school. I'm the associate dean for student inclusion and diversity. And I, you know, I think I, everyone told me what a demand it was going to be on my time. But, you know, now that I'm living the life for four months you know, it, it's definitely a balance. And I think you just really have to be picky about what you say yes to. Um, patient care, uh, taking care of students, for me, that trumps everything. So you just sort of have to focus on um, what it is that's the greatest priority at the moment. What do you leverage and what skills do you have around the idea of saying no? It's come up on the podcast before. There's a real demand for this for me in particular. Saying no is really hard. How do you do that? I think it's a scary thing to say no, but um, once you actually do it, it feels really good. <laughs> it does, totally. And I think I'm at the point now where I'm so saturated that if I don't say no, I'll fail at something else. And so it's been getting easier because the stakes have been getting higher. The problem is, is you have to say no to things that you really want to do or really fun or you know you can make a difference. But I know that if I if I say yes, my patients will suffer, my students will suffer, my family will suffer and I just can't do that anymore. There's too much at stake now. When you look at the stakes going forward, what would you say? What's the sort of trifecta? What's the the, the leading things when you look at the stakes where you say, I have to say no to that because this thing is of the highest priority. As you move into this next phase of your career, 
where as someone who's truly pluripotent, you're going to have growing responsibility, growing impact, growing demands, all of those sorts of things. What are the things that you're honing in on? Well, you know, when I get asked to do something, sometimes I'll negotiate a little bit. I got invited to do something recently that sounded really fun and exciting, but I just knew I didn't have the time for it. So I wrote back and I said, I would consider doing it, but um, I'm unavailable Monday through Friday, 8 to 5 p.m. You know, do you still want me? Um, I was like, you know, I could I could send out a few tweets or a couple of emails and help find volunteers, but that's really all I could do. And they were like, sure, you know, that sounds great. Um, so I think that sometimes it doesn't have to be a firm no. It can be, you know, you sort of let people know what your bandwidth is for it. And I was surprised that they were willing to to still consider me, even though I had such limited bandwidth. So I think it's just knowing your mission and knowing your limits and just being ruthless about it. Like, you know, this is, this is my time. This is what I have to do. And this is what you can get. And sometimes people are, are happy to just, to take even just a little piece of you. That's the book that you're going to write someday. I think, I think you just nailed it. And whatever you title, it does need the word ruthless in it somewhere. That would be my request. Yeah, maybe there's a book in there. I don't know. <laughs> there to, totally I is. To, I have to model it a little bit more. But I've been reading a lot of I uh, I've been reading a lot of leadership books, and there's a lot there's a lot of stuff out there already that's really that's really great. Which ones have you liked though? Well, I just started reading that book, Essentialism. I don't know if you've read that that one. I have not. You're the second person inside of a week to reference it, though. Yeah, it's sort of just what you're saying. The 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 ruthless, or I don't know if he used the word ruthless, but the um, aggressive pursuit of doing less. The aggressive so, pursuit of doing less is something that does not that is that is unfamiliar terminology to me. So I will take that on board. I could I can get better there for sure. So I'm in the process of reading that one right now, and I think that you know reading some of these books it sort of gives you the courage to do what you know you need to do. So. And then having great conversations with people like you, I think, I think at, at the essence, we all, we all know when it is that we should say no. And then when we don't do it and you know, we always end up regretting it. You just used a word that I want to amplify because I think it underscores a lot of what you've been describing here over the last half an hour. But I also think it underscores the driving force behind the the patients and the families that you help take care of too. And that's why they will step into that, into that tension, into that weird space, into that bunker to get treatment is this idea of courage. You, you just have to be, it's okay to be afraid, but you have to continue to move forward. You have to drive ahead. How much does the idea of being courageous inform your daily work and inform your relationships with your patients, as well as your recognition of the journey that they're on? I think it's constant. I mean, you know, I mean, we just talked about having the courage to say no, but having the courage to be vulnerable, be a vulnerable role model for students and patients. It's, it's, it's constant. And I think it's human nature to want to always put on a strong facade, but, you know, people want to see that vulnerability and, you know, it takes a lot of courage um, to admit when you don't know something. I recently had a patient with a very, very complicated type of cancer. And uh, I had never even heard of this clinical scenario. 
And so um, I did what any smart person would do. I found somebody smarter. And I called this person up and I told this person the situation. And this person who is like, you know, internationally known guru was also stumped. And for me, it was very gratifying. You you know what I mean? Like, I was like, okay, phew, thank God it's, you know, not just me. Like, you know, here's this person who is, you know, at the pinnacle who doesn't know what to do either. Um, And then we talked out the we talked out the situation. And in my head, what I wanted to do was exactly what this person said I should do. So that was also very validating to hear that. And so when I went in to talk to the patient, instead of pretending like I was this all knowing oncologist that knows everything, I explained how I found the situation extremely challenging. And I reached out to an international expert at a like a very famous hospital. And had this conversation. I think that took a lot of courage to admit that. And I think the patient really appreciated knowing that. And I was able to really gain that patient's trust. I think it's fantastic that not only did you do that work, but that you shared it. I think that's a whole other step, right? It's saying, I need some support and I'm going to reach out to someone, someone who can help me. And then from there, I'm going to go back to my patient and their family and tell them exactly what I've been doing. That's actually a technique that I try to be really deliberate about. If I have to go look something up, if I have to make phone calls, if I'm doing it, I make sure to tell them that, that the whole journey that I'm on is going to be transparent to you. I'm struggling with this too. Here's the way we're going to figure it out together. It's a, I find it to be an extraordinarily powerful lever of trust building and shared decision-making creation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think most patients, you know, they're, I mean, understand that we're not going to know everything. And that I think when doctors get into scary waters, it's when they, you know, think they know something they don't. Yeah. And so I think that that helps patients gain trust. Well, you definitely practice in a field where most, if not all, who come to you are coming to a place where they don't know very much and knowing that there are intelligent, thoughtful people doing the work in the way that you do it to help guide them through that is extraordinarily important. It's so important. Honestly, um, I think that some days I wish, you know, we have all this pressure, right, with um, healthcare today and shortened visits and the metrics that they measure measure us on. But I mean, I think fundamentally the most important thing that we can do to help our patients besides all the medical stuff is to help them find meaning in the situation that they're in. When my wife finished her course of treatment, the message that we were left with, and it was made very explicit. And I, this, uh, this is one of the pieces that I will always remember. I don't remember everything about that whole journey is the radiation oncologist and the team said, you're done. You know, congratulations. I don't think they use that term actually. My memories are always foggy around this stuff, but what they did, what I do remember is they said, we are always here if you need us. And I loved that. That was one of the most meaningful things that's been said to me by anyone ever. And I take that forward and I try to take every opportunity I have to say that to people that I'm taking care of. We're here if you need us. And I, it's important that, that people know and trust that that is a reality. Yeah. Um, I think particularly for our patients who are incurable, Hmm. It's really, really, really challenging 
And that's why I keep coming back to this idea of meaning. And um, one of my favorite books is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And it might have might be a long time since you've read that book, but it's a book about um, Viktor Frankl was a psychologist, and it was a book about his experience in the concentration camps and what he was able to observe and the people that survived and the people who didn't survive. And, you know, in one of the worst situations that you could possibly be in. And he writes, um, you know, very eloquently and scientifically about how the folks that were able to persevere are the ones who continue to have meaning in their lives. And I'm not saying, you know, having meaning is going to cure your cancer, but if you can focus on, you know, what the meaning is in your life, even in a terrible situation like having a cancer that's incurable, it can make it easier to to live. It can make the days more meaningful. So I wish I had more time with my patients to, particularly the ones who aren't are incurable, to be able to have those types of conversations. It's good that those conversations can be started, though. And I think it's good to know that at least that idea is out there. And my hope, though, is that more of us can take that on with all of the extrinsic pressures that are placed on us and wherever we practice and however we choose to do this work, that that idea of trying to infuse that idea of meaning bi-directionally, that's really effective. So when I say yes and no to stuff, sometimes I'll think about that. I'll just take a time out and, and I'll just think, you know, how is this adding meaning to my life? And if it's just going to be a bunch of boring committee meetings, or if it's just going to be something kind of superficial, then, you know, maybe that's something that I, that I won't make time for. Um, and, and frankly, I, I'm almost, or I think I'm at that point in my career too, where I'm not so much worried about if something's going to help me get promoted or to that next professional. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people say that you need to keep that in mind, but I really feel like if I'm staying true to myself and my mission and my journey, the promotion will come when it's supposed to come, that I don't need to sacrifice things that are meaningful to me in order to get to the next academic level. I, I'm so excited for you to be speaking to crowds of 5,000, 10,000 people. That's just, that's, that's just right where we all need to be moving towards. So I, I, that really resonates because when you do your work in that way, you will enjoy it better. You'll perform at a higher level. I really believe that. And it's not always easy to do. So that, that is appreciated very, very much. I do have another question though, before we wrap up, and this one was important to me because you've done something that I never did or even seen before. What was the highlight? If you could pull one thing, I'm totally putting you on the spot. One highlight of getting to study at the Sorbonne. Well, you know, the whole, so I studied at the Sorbonne. I lived in France two times or in Paris two times, actually. Um, I went to the, I uh, studied the Sorbonne in 1999 to 2000. And then I was there again in 2003, 2004 during a research, doing a research year. And, you know, I'm from a small city in Wisconsin. I'm multiracial. My uh, dad's Ashkenazi Jewish. My mom's uh, Indonesian and Chinese. And growing up in a small town in Wisconsin was a very unusual place for someone with my background to grow up. Um, it's just a very homogeneous environment. So then I went to Madison um, for undergraduate and decided I wanted to take a year abroad. And 
for this small town Wisconsin girl to spend the year in Paris. I mean, it truly was one of the most formative experiences of my life. I, you know, met people from all over the globe. It was a direct exchange program. So I landed um, from a plane off of a plane and I had to find my own apartment. I got a job. I was working. And for me to be able to navigate and thrive in a city as complex and exciting as Paris, it just gave me the confidence to take on, you know, whatever was next. Um, it was just a beautiful, a beautiful time to be there. I'm glad that it gave you the confidence to take on what's next because there's going to be a lot of what's next for you. And it's going to be really fun to watch your impact grow. I am so happy you came on. A lot of people told me when, when I kind of floated the question of who is the right person in the world of radiation oncology to speak to that you are the right person. I'm really glad we persisted to find a time that would work. This was just tremendous. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.